Welcome back to the DC3 cast. My name is Brian with a special live from New York Comic Con edition. Yesterday, uh, Friday, I recorded two interviews at New York Comic Con that I thought might be of interest to our listeners. So I'm going to present them here with a little bit of commentary just so that there's the context for each one. First up is Christopher Priest. Uh, my friend Greg Matasevich was supposed to be interviewing Christopher Priest at the show, but Greg couldn't make the show at the last minute, so I stepped in for him. Uh, we had limited time because the people before me, selfishly, had taken up way more time than they were supposed to, and so I only had about five minutes with Priest, but he was great. He was really uh, engaging and fun to talk to, and an incredibly nice guy. So here's that conversation. So uh, Deathstroke's an interesting character in a lot of ways, and it's just kind of for you to write. You know, your, uh, your writing is, is very cerebral, very layered. You know, it's the book I reread the most right now. So, you have to, because you don't get it the first time. <laughs> but, you know, so when you're preparing a book like that, where do you start? Do you start with a basic plot, and then you build from there? Do you, are you layering instantly? You know, where do you start as a writer getting your head around a book that complex? Well, uh... For one thing, I try to stay ahead of the schedule. So when I get to issue four or something, I might actually come up with a good idea, and I'll go back and rewrite issue one, you know, to make it look like, <laughs> oh, we meant to do this all along, you know, that kind of thing. Um, <coughs> I always start with character. Who is this person? What is he about? What are the fundamentals? What are the characteristics of this character? You know, and where do they, and what is the supporting cast? What is the world like? And where are the intersections? Where are the connections? Where are the conflicts? You know, that kind of thing. And at some point, I decided to turn Slade into House MD, you know. So he's like House MD with a machine gun, you know. Uh, he's this dysfunctional, he's, he's the best at what he does, but he can't handle personal situations. You know, they kind of overwhelm him. Uh, so he finds dysfunctional ways to manage his personal life and his personal personal situations. Okay. So that's what we're seeing there. Yeah. You mentioned the supporting cast, and I think it's been a real strength of the book is is that, you know, you haven't brought everybody in at once. It's been this slow rollout. For you, who are the core members of his supporting cast that when you think <laughs> Deathstroke, you think, I have to have these folks along with him? Well, obviously Wintergreen, who is not only his best friend, but probably his only friend. Yeah. He has lots of frenemies, you know, that are self-serving relationships. Uh, Wintergreen is probably his moral compass and his best friend. Um, and then, of course, his family. He, he's got a, a daughter and he has a son, a living son, uh, and, and a dead son. So we're kind of rolling them all out. Uh, and what we're doing is we're doing a sort of a composite history where we are taking, you know, mostly pre-New 50, uh, pre 52 history and giving it a little freshening up for 2016 and compressing some of the events, because some of the stuff Marv thought about or, or created years apart, and we're trying to make them happen concurrently to compress the time so it makes more sense, you know, logically, in terms of his timeline. Um, but I didn't want to just, like, have an issue, issue one, and now here's Scooby-Doo and all these people showing up, you know, uh, all at the same time. I wanted to be, you know, okay, so issue uh, two is, is Wintergreen, and we, we have this our Wintergreen story, issue three and four, is Rose, and we're bringing Rose out like that. Issue six, we will bring in Joseph, who was Jericho, uh, and so forth. So we are, you know, uh, trying to bring the characters on organically and present them almost as if you've never seen them before, or as, almost as if you've never seen a Deathstroke series before. Um, and I think Jeff Johns and I, as I expressed to Jeff Johns when we were talking about the book, because he worked with everybody on Rebirth, uh, 
rather than us create something for the comic book company that hopefully later gets adapted to film or to television, why don't we just prepare it as if it was a TV show in the first place? You know, so why don't we go, to, go ahead and make those creative decisions now so that hopefully down the line, if Deathstroke becomes a film or, or TV show or something like that, you know, we've already solved some of those problems and, and, and create a springboard that can translate a lot more easily and quickly to the, to the, to the screen. You know, it's interesting because you have a character that on the surface is incredibly unlikable. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, it's very in right now for the anti-hero or for the, the villain starring in the book. But in your hands, Slade becomes something a little bit more complex, a little bit different. And I, I really appreciate that as a reader. When you're creating a character that is such a bastard, do you have to work really hard to give him redeemable qualities? Or are you all in on this guy is terrible? I'm all in completely all in on the guy is terrible and we've been having I've been having this discussion online with some fans about the likability factor and it's like aren't you worried about him being unlikable and I'm like I, I will when the sales fall but right now the sales are very strong you know uh, and he's gonna be even more of a bastard to come we're just getting warmed up on the bastard scale okay. you know uh, people have to come to terms with the fact that the guy's a villain and yeah. I've had this conversation with DC where I've, 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 I've talked to my editors and I've talked to Bob Harris and I went you know, deal with it. The guy's a, you know, he's a villain. Deal with it. Get used to it. You know, he's an unlikable guy. I think the one redeeming factor you have is that he's a guy who loves and wants to be loved, but is capable of neither. So you have a little bit of sympathy for the fact that the guy really does love his kids, but he can't stop screwing around with them. You know, he's constantly pulling crap on his own kids, of all people, uh, and on his ex-wife. And, and, you know, he loves his ex-wife, and his ex-wife loves him, but he can't stop being a bastard because that's who he is. But earlier in the day was the real treat of the, uh, of the experience. You have to realize, I first applied to interview Dan DiDio and Jim Lee in 2011. So this is an interview five years coming, and I knew I only had 10 minutes or so, so I, I'm talking very, very fast. I, mean, I always talk fast, but I'm talking extraordinarily fast because I wanted to get through all, all my questions, and I didn't even get through you know, a third of them. I had so many things I wanted to ask them about. But a couple of takeaways I wanted to share with you guys beforehand. Uh, both guys were incredibly engaging before the microphone went on, and uh, I don't know why that surprised me, but it did. Dan DiDio uh, commented on my Mets hat, and we were sharing our... our uh, pain as Mets fans. Then we talked about Shin Godzilla, which I had just seen. He's a big uh, kaiju Godzilla guy. We talked about that for a minute while Jim Lee was finishing up something else. And then after the interview, Jim Lee gave me some shit about my Mets hat as well, which was, you know, I guess funny. Um, no, they were they were very cool. And we actually took a picture, which you could find at multiversitycomics.com, which is uh, for friends of the site who have been following us for a long time, the picture is going to be a funny one. I think for folks who are just uh, new to the site, it's going to look like three dudes pointing at a camera. But, you know, enjoy the picture for what it is. But uh, I said, I got about 10 minutes with, with Dan and Jim, and, uh, you know, I was getting tapped on the shoulder pretty much every 30 seconds, the last two or three minutes, you know, telling me to wrap it up. But they both like to talk. So, unfortunately, I only got to ask, I think it was four questions over the course of the 12 minutes or so that are there. But, you know... Um, I hope this is the first of many conversations that I have with them, and I hope that they can come on the podcast sometime so that Vince and Zach can uh, can be uh, a part of the conversation too. So, um, you know, we'll be back next week with a regular installment of the DC3Cast. Until then, enjoy this interview with Dan DiDio and Jim Lee. 
uh, go to multiversitycomics.com for lots of New York Comic Con coverage. Follow me on Twitter at Brian Needs a Nap. Follow Vincent Zach at SirFox89 for Zach at VJ underscore OSTROWSKI for Vince. And uh, we'll see you on Wednesday. Bye. Oh, one more quick note. Uh, the interview kind of started with uh, us just talking off the cuff here, a little bit of casual conversation before it starts. I would like to include a little bit of that if I can, just so you can get a tone for kind of the conversation. But Jim Lee's talking about how uh, I'm wasting his time, joking with me, of course. And then um, the two of them started the interview sitting, and I was standing because there were only two chairs. And then a couple minutes in, you'll hear us start to rustle around because they decided they wanted to stand as well. So just some context there for you, uh, for real this time. Bye. Sure. You're not wasting my time. Otherwise, right, right. I can't speak for him on that one. Okay. Well, uh, first of all, time wasted. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, first of all, congratulations. Is the reason why we're sitting down, by the way? Yeah, you should, you should sit down too. I'm the low man on the total pole. I can stand. It's cool. like way like a fan in my head. <laughs> okay. Uh, congratulations to Rebirth Success, first of all. It's, it's been really uh, stunning, actually, to see how how well it's running. Uh, you guys did something similar with the New 52 five years ago. What was the biggest lesson you learned from that? You thought, if we ever do this again, we have to apply this to it. The interesting thing about we learned with Rebirth is that, you know, we, we sort of over... In, I'm sorry, we knew, you know what, it's, let, me, let me roll this back, because New 52 was a very, very particular thing we did. What happens is our story had moved into such a point where we felt we were creatively restricted on what our characters would go. So the idea of New 52 was a clean slate, to, to give them as open as we can, to begin as, as fresh as you can be, to create as many opportunities for storytelling. Then in the five years, we saw the layering of continuity coming back again, and it wasn't all for good, but it also didn't have a base. It didn't resonate with the fans because ultimately we might have changed things too much to the point that um, the connective tissue between our fans and our characters was lost. Things that resonated with them were no longer there. Things that were essential to the character might have been lost along the way as well. So what we did is we reevaluated all our line, we reevaluated our characters and saw what we thought was missing. And what was key was the generational aspect of the DC Universe and just some of the core conceits of relationships that, that people really wanted to see again. So in going back and relaunching the books, we looked to see how can we reintroduce the generational aspect and how can we rebuild some of the more integral relationships of the DCU that the fans wanted to see. Um, and we think that we did a pretty good job because I think that's why you see the level of success you have. I, I would say... Uh... There's, there's two, two ways to answer that. Uh, the, the first, I think, on a creative level, well, now I feel odd. I feel like I need to stand up. So. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's okay. so weird talking yeah, yeah, yeah. and sitting down. Yeah, yeah. Me, uh, yeah, no. So I think creatively, uh, what was I going to say? That um, um, in a sense, you uh, when you do things like these initiatives like this, you always start off big. Um, but what happens is that sometimes you lose your creative way. Uh, from your initial goal, and I think if there's something to be learned from the New 52 launch and the years that followed it was, it, it was a great start, and it had all the best intentions, but unless people kept moving towards that creative goal, things started to meander, and you start losing that momentum and, and, and the audience, and I think that's one of the things that we still keep in mind as we go forward with Rebirth, is how do we keep just involvement? How do we keep the focus on what makes these characters unique and special, keep the fundamentals in play as we keep layering on storylines and, and develop the, uh, the uh, and c continue to push these characters going forward. Then on a, on a business side, I think there's 
things that we learned in terms of, all right, well, maybe we, we, we don't do one month and do all number ones, but we spread it out over three months. Maybe we keep the price back at $2.99 because that was a very popular thing that we did. Uh, so there's a lot of learnings from what we did before, but I think at the end of the day, people like to kind of uh, pit the new 52 and Rebirth against one another, but ultimately, I, I feel, I feel personally, that without the new 52, you're not going to have Rebirth in that... It, you needed that new 52 is what was needed at that time because of the lethargy and, and just sort of malaise in the industry itself. It only not sort of re energized people about DC, but it brought a lot of people back in the comics period and it lifted all boats. Uh, Rebirth feels more special because of the dramatic changes that were happening in 52, and it's a direct answer to people that felt like something was left out when the new 52 happened, right? right? And so it's a course correction for us, but I mean, it's. It's it's that's what we do. I mean, it's it is. We have characters that are 75, 80 years old. <laughs> right. Uh, quite honestly, you constantly have to refresh. You constantly have to rethink. It's just it's interesting because we think that the you see the the process accelerating for the for the re, you know for the reimagination of the characters. But I think that's because there's so much media out there and so much the. To attract people's attention, that you're constantly trying to right. be as innovative as possible to in a very crowded marketplace. You know, right. you guys have talked before about the churn of these books. How certain books are going to turn over six, twelve, eighteen months. I know with the New Fifty Two, there was uh, yeah, I think it was eight issues was the first round of yeah. cancellations. When you're plotting, he canceled Omac on me. <laughs> I, I tried to stay. We have some big Omac. I was told to give you a hug for Omac, but yeah, I'm, I was going to say, you, besides these Omac people, like, I keep on saying, is that that Jim Lee guy, man? He, he just wanted that Justice League book to be special. <laughs> but anyway, you know, when you when you're plotting out these new books, do you have certain exit points? Where, okay, well, this would be a logical place to end this. This would be a logical place to pick something else up. Are there multiple exits on the strategy? You know, it's it's a little different this time around because of the double ships. So the, you're not going to see cancellations churn. What you'll see is maybe a double ship move to monthly mm -hmm. if we see something slow down uh, but the reality is that everything's moving at a good speed we're we've already announced that we're we're introducing three new titles um, and there might be a question of why just three I thought there was gonna be more and the reality is we, we don't want to overextend uh, if, you, if you look at the list of books it's very clear what books we're doing we're doing our primary characters the ones that people really want to read now the goal is to take those books, the double ships, and take our other characters, start to put them in the series. To give them an opportunity to find a new audience, give them a chance to stories to gestate, to, to build a fan base, instead of constantly just throwing things out there, hoping people find if they don't kill it and come back with something else. That's the churn that we just we, we just can't break break that habit right now. The the you know, for us to be able to attract new people, we gotta do it slowly and we gotta do it on our best properties to introduce ideas and then from there be able to roll them out into a series, hopefully down the road, or not. Maybe some characters are just supporting characters. But the goal is to make every book that we're doing right now the best it can be. I think that that's, I mean, that's another key difference is that it is like sort of taking your time with the whole thing. I mean, when the New 52 happened, it was such a hot, uh, it was such a, you know, such a hot event and there was demand for it. Things were moving at such a quick pace. I think with, with Rebirth, we're, we're slowing it down a bit and saying, wow, it is hot, but we don't have to rush into this demand. Let's take our time. Let's keep the value, the brand, as, as, as high as it can be and only put out stuff if it's ready to go. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, the one thing I do miss from New 52 is uh, like the war books or the, uh -huh. the westerns or the horror books. Uh, but you know what? Ultimately, we'll get, we'll get back to yeah, that again. Yeah, now. The main yeah, thing is to make sure, you, as long as the, we got to get the core strong, we got to get the foundation built, and then you can build out from there. Absolutely.
I have a question for each of you separately. Jim, yeah. you ran Wildstorm as a studio for a long time. So, so seeing that come back is a very cool thing. But I have two questions about Wildstorm. My first question is, what did you learn from running the small, smaller studio that you can apply to running DC? But also, when you're relaunching that, how hard is it for you to, to, to let someone else, you know, in this case Warren Ellis, be the, 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 the captain of the ship, for other words? Let me do the second one first. Sure. Because uh, it's fresh in my head. Um, well, look, when, whenever you create a line of books, uh, you know that there's no way to do everything. Right. right? Or, um, and in fact, uh, when we first launched Wildstorm, it, it was really run mostly by myself and Brandon Troy, and then later we brought in people like Jeff Campbell. Um, but uh, so it had a very specific tonality. But we knew that for it to sort of diversify and and evolve like all these other universes have over time, it, it requires sort of fresh blood, new voices coming in. So uh, it was really, uh, actually a really wonderful time in, in the history of Wildstorm when we brought in people like Steve Gerber right. or an Alan Moore or a Warren Ellis and sort of unleash their creativity and give them the freedom that, that uh, we ourselves saw when we, when we launched Wildstorm. And out of that, you got some very, very interesting takes on the characters. And uh, I mean that, that's the beauty of uh, characters in shared continuity over long periods of time. It's almost like social. It's almost like Darwinism. Like right. the best ideas rise to the top, and that's what evolves and shapes and defines who these characters are. So that was really cool. Um, so that I knew knew that going in that that was always going to be a part of it. So bringing Warren back, uh, and and I loved his sort of take on the Wildstorm universe. I felt in many ways it best defined some of the characters and some of the concepts he got. He got the whole under, he got the theme that, of what we were trying to achieve from the start and then he just reinterpreted it in his savvy Warren Ellis way and made it all sexy and cool. So that was really exciting to see and we're looking forward to more of that. The second part of the question was the first part which was, uh, what was it? What uh, you learned from running Wildstorm that oh, you apply to running DC? Uh, you know, I, I think uh, I always refer to as as Wildstorm and a lot of the characters that haven't been around for 75, 80 years, we were the uh, we were the impulse buys at a grocery store, right? <laughs> the, the characters at Marvel and DC are your, you know, they're your bread and butter. They're the, thing, the staples. You have to have them. Right. So when you go in the store, you know you're going to get those. So to compete with the Marvels and DCs, you had to make these other things as exciting or different as possible. So it's all. It was interesting when I when I came into DC having access to these. Amazing characters that had such fan, you know, such strong fan bases and such histories and legacies. Um, but I think, but, but how it's affected my position is, we still have that uh, dilemma and that people love the DC universe. It's harder for us to sell a new IP or right. a new character or things that are off genre. And um, so I, I, li I like to think that I bring some of the experiences I had trying to sell those kinds of things to customers uh, to attract notice from those readers into the entire line. Got it. All right. Question for you, sir. Uh, you came to comics professionally a little bit later than like Jim did, let's say. Yeah, I so, was, so I was past my mature years. Yeah. <laughs> so, so as an outsider, when you came in, what was the one part of the business that you thought this is this is not going to work? What did you try and change, or have you had to become a, a creature of that particular culture? No, when I was brought in, it was it was to change. Um, it was um, DC was very uh, very. Um, we use the word ossified <laughs> in the day. It was ossified in its style and approach and how it did and its look of its characters. And we had to look at things differently. And it was just brought in a different sensibility and just in regard to, you know, I have to say, it all goes, it actually goes back to Jim again, to me. Um, 
what happened was that when I first got here, I, I, I knew what I thought comics could be and how we should be able to push things with DC and things were very set in the ways with the continuities and the sensibilities uh -huh. and they had worked themselves into a corner. Um, and <laughs> I feel like I'm repeating what we just said on Rebirth. And actually when I first got here, a lot of it about was Rebirth. That's where Green Lantern Rebirth right, came right. from. And the idea that Jeff and I had with the Green Lantern Rebirth and the relaunch of Teen Titans and all that was getting back to the core conceits of who the characters were. And the characters evolved so far away from the core that we wanted to get them back there again. So right. that was one of the first things we did. But also, when Jim came on board and brought this dynamics um, to Batman during the Hush storyline mm -hmm. and just showed that there was potential in the DC line, that it could achieve numbers higher than even what we expected. Right. It, it gave us a, a basically a north star to say we should be trying to be achieving what they're accomplishing on that Batman Hush book, which is try to address every title in that same energy and fashion. So it became a rally cry for a lot of things that we tried to do at DC. But it, it was a really interesting time because trying to bring new voices in always, it's about looking at the characters with a fresh set of eyes. Again, the characters are 75, 80 years old, so what you need to do is you need every once in a while if we're not going to change the characters, we have to change our perspective of the right. characters. Right. And that might be changing editors, yeah. it might be changing talent, but it means something's got to change in order for this thing to continue to grow and move on, or, right. else, or else it gets stuck in stone. Right.